When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the Freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me this week is a friend of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You know him from guest appearances on the Film and Water Podcast and Give Me Those Star Wars, our pal Omar. Hi, Omar. Hi, Rob. Great to be here. It is great to have you here. I, I'm so excited when you reached out to me and you said you wanted to talk about this particular song, which in this case is Isis, the second track from Bob's 1976 album, Desire. And man, there's a lot to talk about because this is one crazy-ass song. Uh, but before we get to that, I, I have to ask everybody when they're the, here for the first time, like, how did you come to appreciate the music? How did you come to the work of Bob Dylan? Well, you know, I, I came pretty late. Um, I really didn't become a super fan until... The latter stages of college. Um, I, I'm a little younger than you, Rob. I think, although based on your, based on your irritating statuses of running five miles every day, maybe not. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I so I, I my junior, I, I, I've always been into music, um, but I, I totally just kind of took Bob Dylan for granted until um, I think uh, I purchased Love and Theft in the fall of 2001. I think it actually came out on 9/11 um, yes, because I heard like. I had heard like amazing things about it, and like Love and Theft was really one of my main entry points into his catalog, and it, it like it kind of blew me away because I, I heard about you know the folk Dylan, like how he pissed people off and like kind of shocked the world by plugging in, and his weird troubadour phase and the Christian phase. Like I heard about, I knew about the mythology of Dylan, I just didn't know a lot about the music. So uh, Love and Theft was the big thing, and then and then for my birthday that year, I think it was like junior year of college. Um, my friend got me um, a copy of the Free Will and Bob Dylan, um, and that was to me like a perfect like I I wore that that album out. Um, <laughs> it was it was astounding, and I was prepared to just kind of be underwhelmed because of all the hype that surrounded him. And so by the time I got to um, my first year of law school, a couple of years later, I was fully I was fully immersed in Dylan. I, I had. I think this has been obviously this is before streaming, so I had purchased like basically all the the highlighted you know albums. I couldn't get all 43 or whatever at that time, just because it was just I don't know. I didn't want to do like New Morning or whatever, but like and the bootleg series were just starting to be a thing, mm-hmm. so I could combine the you know the sort of the electric atmosphere of the live performances with with the records. And you know, there's a lot of seismically good stuff there's obviously i mean i think there's there's a lot of filler but to me that's 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 good i i you know he's become like one of my signpost moments in in like pop music i I don't think there's maybe more than like two or three other artists that to me are as towering as dylan um and i i don't know isis is so much fun isis is so neat and you know when we the opportunity to talk about it is exciting um but there's just so much to get into and it's also from an incredibly weird interesting period in his discography and in his life that you know i think it's really fun to uh to jump into yeah i i can remember when i started getting into him and one of the great things that you can enjoy is that when you when you are 
when you do start getting into them, you realize there's so much to get into. I mean, there's, you know, you can pick eras uh, that you prefer and, and sort of dig through all that stuff. I mean, there's again, like you just mentioned, there's 40 records, you know, and that's just yeah, that, that's just the original albums, let alone and, bootlegs and, here, and all know, the other so stuff. We're so lucky. We're so lucky because of the the way they've been able to like curate, and because of like I, I always go back to the bootleg series, which I think started in like. The, the early two, I think the first one was in 91, and mm-hmm. then they took a big break, and then they started again with, in 98 with um, the Royal Albert Hall one. I think those have been a really good way for me to sort of curate, like, you know, the, the cream from, from maybe some of the more forgettable stuff. And the great thing about the Bootleg series is it's also introduced me to stuff that I had previously overlooked um, and, 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 and giving new appreciation for. Like, the reason I like Isis so much, listen, I had... I owned the Desire album, and I certainly enjoyed it. I think the reason I bought the Desire album was because I think the Hurricane song was such a big, big to do. I think that like the, the the film had come out in 2000 or 1999 or something, and and so I I, I remember the song, and so I, I got the album. But to me, that was just Desire was just sort of like the the throwaway after like the the monumental, towering achievement that Blood on the Tracks was. Um, I didn't pay it much mind, and then what, what did it for me was the performance of Isis on the the Rolling Thunder review. Mm-hmm. Like that song brought it to life, and it, it caused me to sort of like go back and listen to the studio version and like great, get a newer appreciation for that. So like to me, this is Isis is great, and a lot of songs like Isis are great because like they came alive like in the the concert touring phase. I mean, there would have been enough to unpack if it had just been a a really good studio song, but like there's something about it. Like it has like kinetic energy that very few of his other songs have, even the great ones. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I think uh, we've only covered one song from uh, this record previously, and that was Hurricane, which I did with Corey Hodgson way back in episode 37. And I don't know how much we got into the, the specific history of uh, the, the the album Desire. Uh, basically, as uh, Omar just said, it came after Blood on the Tracks, which was this huge achievement. And critically, it had put Dylan sort of back on the map, as that it was established that he was not just sort of like a 60s act. He was an, an ongoing creative person that could, not that anybody was really doubting that because he had had other hits before that, but Blood on the Tracks, really, he was able to show that he could pull off something as important, as uh, successful as his 60s recordings. So coming off of that, he decided, uh, you know, as he typically does, he could have, you know, given everybody Blood on the Tracks Volume 2, but he didn't do that. He decided to go for something as differently as sounding as possible. And part of that was that he hooked up with um, a writer, Jacques Levy, and him and Levy apparently went off and took a vacation together and sat down and wrote a bunch of songs together, and a lot of them were very theatrical. I mean, Hurricane opens with the line, here comes the story of the hurricane, which is even the line they use in the trailer for the for the movie. Um, yeah. So they, these things were written as sort of like story songs, and a lot of the songs on Desire are story songs, and Isis is one of the songs. As I said, it's the second track. It opens with a great very insistent acoustic piano which dylan himself is playing this dum 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 and it's like a march that just keeps pushing you along and so it, the the first couple of verses it opens up with he says i married isis on the fifth day of may which by the way if you're listening to this episode the day it drops the fifth day of may perfect time <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but i could not hold on to her very long so i cut off my hair and i rode straight away for the wild unknown country where I could not go wrong. I came to a high place of darkness and light. The dividing line ran through the center of town. I hitched up my pony to the post on the right, went into a laundry to wash my clothes down. 
A man in the corner approached me for a match. I knew right away he was not ordinary. He said, are you looking for something easy to catch? I said, I ain't got no money. He said, that ain't necessary. And, you know, like a lot of Dylan's story songs, they seem to exist in this weird world where it's not the past, but it's certainly not the present day. Uh, I love the fact that a lot of his songs are just indeterminate as to when exactly all this is happening. Well, it goes along. I mean, that aspect of these narratives with these particular songs on Desire, especially Isis, even though the narratives are like they're clearly stories like I like to think of Isis as sort of like, you know, like the Joseph Campbell, like hero's journey in a way. Um, but at the same time, they, they come from like a sensibility. And, and this is highlighted by the musicality of like this sort of loose ramshackle feel to it. You know what I mean? It's this loose, shambling, romantic, like adventures tune. It's like playful. It's exotic. It's mysterious. It's sexy. And like it. it it opens itself to like a couple of different like basic interpretations, but like you're right in the sense that like I, the sense I always got from Desire was that like we are sitting down, him and Jack were sitting down to tell stories, and like I think there's a story, and I don't know how apocryphal it is, um, although I think it was in like Rolling Stone, not that that makes it like you know beyond reproach, but like <laughs> about the the fact that like they the two of them wrote this song like in one night. Yes, I um, heard that too. Yeah. So so even though like you're talking about you know a, a story, a narrative. I think the musicality and the themes of the story itself lead it to sort of this, lead it to having this feeling of just kind of this hazy, fun adventure, right? They want to wrap it up in this like Western motif. A lot, yes, a lot of uh, Dylan songs. People are riding horses. There don't there don't seem to be any cars in the, yeah. Dylan's world. Nobody's ever getting really in a, in a car. Uh, he goes on. The song continues as we set out that night for the cold in the north. I gave him my blanket. He gave me his word. I said, where are we going? He said, we'd be back by the 4th. I said, that's the best news that I've ever heard. I was thinking about turquoise. I was thinking about gold. I was thinking about diamonds and the world's biggest necklace. As he rode through the canyon to the devilish cold, I was thinking about Isis, how she thought I was so reckless. How she told me that one day we would meet up again and things would be different the next time we wed. If I only could hang on and just be her friend, I still can't remember all the best things she said. And so again, it's another one of these like, Okay, he's departed from this woman, but he can't get her out of his mind. And, you know, I have to admit, there is a bit of a a shaggy dog uh, sense to this story because uh, we find out when we get to the end of the song that it's sort of he never should have taken the trip in the first place. But it's it's sort of funny in that it took me the longest time to figure out what the hell this song is about. And I realized I really think it really is just about a guy who is in love with this woman, but he can't quite commit to her. He's entranced by her. He takes off of this adventure which really yields nothing and he comes back and it's i would say you know in the live versions which you mentioned he prefaces this song by saying this is a song about marriage oh yeah and the rolling the, the, the nice 70s that's like that's exactly what he did that's how he prefaced i don't know if he does if he did that subsequent but that was definitely like the theme that he would explicitly introduce in the 1970s this is a song about marriage right um and when you you know the, the only frustrating thing about this song is I feel like in some sense from an interpretive standpoint, it's like a big fat softball down the middle <laughs> because it's like, oh, OK, well, what year did he get married? OK, so this is like a few years after like the legendary motorcycle accident and marrying Sarah um, and and settling into this life of, of domesticity. And so I just think that, you know, the writing is I mean, on one level, the writing is extremely basic. Right. I mean, we're not talking about like hard to decipher themes here which is why part of me is like okay it's easily able to be interpreted on the other hand you know 
I want to think that like maybe it resists easy interpretation, but like it's hard not to read into this. Listen, he's been at this point. He's in like his mid, early to mid thirties, kind of the age where you do start to bow down to sort of like your your basic domestic responsibilities. Um, and but you still sort of feel that you know that sort of romantic tug, that romantic pull, and you're also sort of fighting with this notion of you know uh, this idealized bride. I mean, it, you know who and the, these themes of loyalty and stability. But you're you're thinking about your wayward youth again. This is not you. You don't need to be an expert to like crack the code here. Which is why I kind of wonder if I'm like leading myself down a trap by just saying, okay, this is just very basic. He realizes that like what he had was in front of him the whole time, and he went on this loose ramshackling adventure in search of treasure and jewels, um, in search of like the exciting unknown. But like, could there? I mean, is it more than the very basic thing that like I'm coming to? Yeah, that's, you mentioned, I, I'm glad you mentioned the, the language. It is, it's very simple and direct language. I mean, the, the meanings are a little obscured, but yeah, the language is very, very straightforward. I, and you talk about the loose ramshackle sound, and that was partly due to the fact that the, the band that he has on this is he's got Rob Stoner on bass, Howie, yep. Howie Wyeth on drums, and Scarlett, Lever, Scarlett, Scarlett Rivera on violin. And uh, I may have told this story on the Hurricane episode. Uh, it doesn't matter if I did or not. But it's uh, apparently he uh, hired her simply when he was driving down the street, uh, I guess not on a horse, actually driving a car. Yeah. And he saw this very interesting looking woman carrying a violin case on the street and basically pulled over and like, <laughs> you know, rolled the window down. And he's like, hey, would you like to be in a band? And she was like, oh, OK. And I'm like, imagine that. Imagine That's an insane that. story, yet one that tracks with everything we've come to understand about Dylan. Right. Yes. And like the, the thing about it is. This that's unique about this album is it even though it feels like a road album, it feels like an album that was constructed by a band on tour, and it was feels like an album that was not constructed in a studio but written on tour, like just like postcards with stories, and like and and like the band wrote it just by improvising through things, and I don't mean that in a crappy way. I mean that like with in terms of like the highest compliment. It feels like a very well crafted road album, and because for me, I mean, I'd be interested to get your take on this. But for me, you know, you bring up the violinist, and like, listen, the this is the for me this is the first album where the supporting band gets this like unlimited space to breathe. You know, if we're talking about. The, the ride with the horse, you know, his, his narrative, his hero's journey as this grand adventure, as this, this magical mystery tour, <laughs> like the, the, the violin, you could make it a case that the violin is our tour guide. You could make the case, particularly in the studio version, that the piano is our tour guide. Um, you could make the case that, um, like, like in terms of like the, the full thrust of the narrative, those drums, those to me feel like semicolons in the middle of the narrative like punctuating like sharply like these very very cathartic beats as he like as he as he spits out these words you know like the, the these supporting these supporting musicians get like to be center stage for which for me feels like a, the very first time I, I don't mean to shortchange the people you know the musicians responsible for you know like the the, the towering albums of the 1960s like you know the blonde, the uh, blonde on blonde and highway 61 but like doesn't it feel to you to a, to a degree that like these other people get a, like a, their turn in the spotlight? 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, certainly some of his 60s records, uh, the stuff Michael Bloomfield did, I mean, a lot of it's, and then the, the, the uh, Al Cooper's <laughs> organ playing on like a Rolling Stone is like its yeah. own its own thing. But for the most part, uh, Dylan is the, the, the dynamo that everything else is sort of cranked around for his early records. And then especially in Blood on the Tracks, he went for a very, very minimal sound. There were some songs yeah. on that record where it is literally just him and one other musician. But here... He definitely went for the gypsy caravan type feel, and, and I've read, I've done a lot of reading on the making of this album, and they talk about that at one point he was literally just drafting in people left and right without any thought of how they would accompany him or how these songs would work. And but it one- feels like that, doesn't it? That's a perfect description of what it feels like, and I feel like when I say that, it seems like I'm shortchanging them, and it, it seems like I'm, I'm sort of damning them with faint praise. But I mean that in like the best possible way. It has this like loosely improvised like hey are you on the street come on in play something bang like there are literally i wrote this down and thinking about this like there are literally bells and whistles in the song that's how that's how it feels like you know what i mean it's just like anything goes musically yeah i mean at one point during this the making of desire he roped in eric clapton because they were hanging out and there were yeah. so many musicians in the room at one point he had this other band called kokomo he's got emmylou harris singing back up and uh, yvonne yeah. yvonne element i believe and there were so many people that clapton was like i gotta get out of here i can't i can't deal yeah. with this. There's, there's 25 people trying to play and the producers trying to record it and so and he said dylan was frequently willing to sort of work without a net like he was willing to sort of rack up studio time and just sort of experiment and see what would happen and a lot of musicians didn't want to work that way and couldn't work that way but that's what he wanted for desire and you're right this this album especially he really does give a lot of space to his backup singers his violin players his a lot of these people get more, uh, they, they get a chance to be center stage, even though, of course, Dylan's vocal is, as you mentioned, it's it's, it's a wild vocal, too. I love the way he sings oh, it. Oh, yeah. He like really that. leans into his Dylan-ness. At one point when he sings the line about, um, when he says, um, we, we came to the pyramids all embedded in ice, he said, there's a body I'm trying to find. If I carried it out, it'll bring a good price. It was then that I knew what he had on his mind. The wind, it was howling, and the snow was outrageous. We chopped through the night, and we chopped through the dawn. When he died, I was hoping that it wasn't contagious, but I made up my mind that I had to go on. When he sings go on, he makes the word on have about 15 syllables in it. He's like, I oh, had yeah. to go. Ah. Oh, definitely. I mean, you know, like, it is as emotional and raw as I've heard in his voice in a while, you know? Like, it's like, it's like every nerve ending is exposed. Um, and, and that, that voice is as much an instrument as everything else in this song. And, you know, he's taken a lot of lumps for his voice, uh, over the years, particularly in the latter day. But like, I mean, to me, the, the use of his voice to, to supplement and draw everything else and, and to like take the, the narrative form, it's never better than in this song. Like he leans into his Dylan-ness with yes, that book. Yes. You know what I mean? The sneering, like I, I can just, I can feel it. It's like very visceral. Um, and that, that's what makes the characters pop to life in this weird story. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, I was thinking, uh, I, I don't know, right? It's a Western, right? I mean, you just you alluded to the fact that, like, they're on horses and whatnot, and, and this is true. But, like, one of the things that I had written down, and uh, I'd like to take credit for this, but I'm sure I wrote it down inspired by, by someone smarter, was just, like, you, you're talking about a Western, and you're talking about, like, you know, the hero's journey and adventure. But, like, what's notable to me, notable to me was that, 
even though it's ominous and you're talking about essentially grave robbing, yeah, <laughs> and you're talking about like his shady friend um, that recruited him. Um, it's a western that doesn't have any violence in it. Dead, well, right, yeah, it's <laughs> it is. I said it's a very it is it exists in this weird universe. I mean, we we blew right by the line. He says we came to the pyramids all embedded in ice. Yeah. Huh? Like, yeah. like, what pyramids would those be, Bob, that are embedded in ice that you could get to on horses? Uh, yeah, I and mean, you're right. These guys are – there's the threat of violence because, again, you're talking about breaking into a tomb and looking for things. Yeah. But yet nobody shoots one another. There's nobody dead in this, no. in this song. Um, he talks about – he goes on. He says, I broke into the tomb, but the casket was empty. There was no jewels, no nothing. I felt I'd been had. When I saw that my partner was just being friendly, when I took up his offer, I must have been mad. I picked up his body and I dragged him inside. There's some violence there, maybe. Yeah, threw, threw, him, threw him down in the hall and I put back the cover. I said a quick prayer and I felt satisfied. Then I rode back to find Isis just to tell her I love her. She was there in the meadow where the creek used to rise, blinded by sleep and need of a bed. I came in from the east with the sun in my eyes. I cursed at one time, then I rode on ahead. And then he gets to this exchange, which is my favorite exchange in the whole song, where he says, she said, where you been? I said, no oh, place. I said yes. she said, where you been? I said, no place special. She said, you look different. I said, well, I guess. She said, you've been gone. I said, that's only natural. She said, you want to stay? I said, if you want me to, yes. That's, no, I love that that's your favorite part, because the thing is, to me, that, that's, that's what does it for me, because it doesn't let us off the hook, right? Because, like, narratively, it would be so easy to wrap a bow on this with this sort of unambiguously happy reunion, right? The lesson having been learned via the journey that, like, what was important and what he was in search of was in front of him the whole time, right? But, like, this is a guy who's also reckoning with the fact that it's marriage, and marriage is harder, so I've heard, right? Like, it, it's like, there's he comes back, and there's still this tension in the air when he reunites with her. You've been gone. That, that's only natural. Like, you're going to stay? If you want me to, like... That's amazing. Like that's that is purely like distilled. You're you're coming back to this fit, this mud pit that you're in. I, again, I don't even mean that in a bad way. But like it's real. He's talking about. He's not romanticizing it. He's not like looking at it with like dewy dewy eyed, um, you know, with rose colored glasses. But he's very realistic about it and and very solemn about it. But at the same time, it's worth coming back to and working on. And again. Like, the temptation is the easy analysis, right? You just go in the chronology of his own life. And the fact that, like, Blood on the Tracks is being celebrated is celebrated as the, the album that was written about his breakup, the breakup of his marriage. The, the marriage officially broke up in 77. Desire came out in 76. Like, these are tangibly issues that he's struggling with. I love that this is your favorite part, you know, of the, of the narrative because, like, it doesn't let us off the hook. This stuff is hard. Even when you realize that it's worthwhile, it's still difficult. Yeah, and I love in that, in that exchange he has the, the sort of passive-aggressive ag nature of it where she says, you want to stay? And he says, if you want me to, yes. Yeah. And he puts the decision back on her. And it's like, yeah. well, wait a minute. You're the one who went off on this adventure, which I always assume means it's an affair. You know, he went off and had this this uh, ill-conceived affair with somebody. I mean, in in the in the context of the song, it's a, it's a it's a trip to get jewels and gold and riches. But I always assume that on on the basic level, it's about a guy who gets married. He gets the itch. He gets the seven-year itch, maybe. Uh, yeah. And he goes and he strays and he realizes, oh Lord, what did I do? This was a mistake. 
uh, you know, I mean, there's the line about when he took off his offer, I must have been mad, which yeah. I would imagine a lot of people think after they've maybe had an affair and they realize, sure. oh, my God, what I've done. And then he comes back and he's, you want me, you know, you want me to stay if you want me to? Yes. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You make the decision. Are you staying or are you not? Why is it up to the woman who you have wronged? To, why are you putting the decision in her hands? And that's, like, like that's, that's the guy. That's, that's the character. That's correct. And like it is, a, it, objectively speaking, it's a prick move. But at the same time, I like that this loose, shambling, like weird adventure has like a very three-dimensional protagonist. Um, when you know, when you're talking about like the the subject that that's like driving him away and driving him back, I think it would be like disingenuous to you know not grapple with the fact that like. He's not like, like, I don't know who I'm supposed to root for in this song. That's what's great about it. You know what I mean? And the thing is, whether it's directly autobiographical, like, I, I think it's pretty hard to dispute that, like, obviously his own recent experiences played into the song's sensibility. And, you know, it's just, I think it's simply to get, you know, Dylan telling a rambling story to emphasize how sort of out of reach everlasting love is when you juxtapose it with, like, our essential human nature. But, I mean, to me, that part is my favorite. Your favorite part is my favorite part because, like, he's coming black, flesh and all. And, like, they're going to work on it or they're not going to work on it, but he's not going to be any different than, like, the way he was. Like, and, and, and to me, that's life. That, like, you're in it. Like, it's, it's not idealized. Um, and I think as a, as a beacon of not only, you know, his crumbling marriage, but also probably where he was in life at that point— um, it's, it's very instructive, right? Cause like the born again, Christian phase is coming in T minus what, two years. So uh, pretty close. Yeah. Yeah. So like, to me, what, what I like about this narrative is that like, it's so whimsical and fantastical, but it's juxtaposed against like sort of the harsh, brutal reality of like, of, of human nature. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's like all the great works of literature are like that, even though this is just like very simple. It, it's almost like Candide and that like there's a very basic there, there. There's like a very basic point to all of this. And it's told in this very like fanciful way um, and like 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 all the best storytelling. Um, and and I, I love that that's your favorite part because it's absolutely my favorite part. That's yeah. sort of like, well, what now? What yeah. are you talking about? You left. Come on. Yeah, and he say, he sums up the song. He says, uh, "Isis, oh Isis, you mystical child, what drives me to you is what drives me insane. I still can remember that way that you smiled on the fifth day of May in the drizzling rain." And so he's flashing back, presumably, to their marriage. And you know that that exchange that we just quoted, the penultimate one, it makes me think of a quote George Harrison said about Dylan once, where he said, uh, "You know, he says that people take Bob so seriously. He really is quite the joker." And I think that you know, this song especially has a lot of humor in it, but it's because the performance is so strong. And again, a part of it is that that piano is just so ominous sounding and oh, yeah. such a death march to it that it seems this song seems very dire and very serious. Because, again, it, we, you talk about there's no violence, but there is a dead body and there's all these things. And yet it's lighthearted in that it, it's it's he is such a poker face. Here. I mean, that, that, that exchange about with him and back and forth is, is high comedy, but it's delivered in such a, such a straightforward way that you kind of take it in a different way. You take it a little more seriously, maybe even than, than you're meant to. And the live versions are, I mean, are manic. I mean, they, I mean they managed listen, to make it even I, I, faster. I would have loved the studio. I would have eventually have fallen in love with the studio version. I'm convinced of it. But it's the live version that, like, grabs me. I mean, you have to, I mean, you, you know this. I, like, this was the first time, I believe, that, like, audiences were seeing him without his guitar. 
right? And like this was the song where he was in the era where he was coming out in his like weird ass like white makeup. Yeah, the white and, like, face paint. Kind of, yep, yep. Yeah, and like like stalking the stage, like just like strutting and just like using his hands like theatrically. Like this was this was like this this troubadour, like the troubadour in like the very raw real like like visceral sense like you know it's it's not just a dude with a guitar this is a this is story time in like the most in their most real guttural way like and, and it's just very fitting that like he goes berserk on stage for this song yeah he immediately took these out on the road and this was part of the rolling thunder review which was yeah. definitely uh, as you as you mentioned it was really the first time he ever performed without a guitar this was this was meant to be a stage show as opposed to yeah. a concert which is what he does now where it's minimalist to the point of almost uh uh i don't you know like some sort of weird performance art in its own way that his concerts yeah. are so minimal but this was uh, they had, you know, up to 10 people on stage and you had different people singing. Joan Baez was there and Roger McGuinn and Joni Mitchell and all these different people would come out and do he they did one whole concert where they were wearing Richard Nixon masks. I mean, yep. he did all kinds of really crazy stuff. And and this is the perfect album to serve as the yes. thematic backdrop to that kind of show, because even the studio version of these songs, particularly with Isis, for some reason, because of like the atmosphere, it, it feels like an event. It feels like something is happening. Even with his like greatest, most towering records, um, it, 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 there's 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 a very like kinetic, vibrant spirit to this that lends itself very directly to like the kind of manic improvisational quality of those shows. So like I just think there's like you you don't get to Rolling Thunder review without like him and, and Levy like writing these songs for desire. These songs are tailor made to be taken out on the road and just and, and just performed like vaudeville. Like you know what I mean? Like it's a performance. It's they're into it. It's not a, a st like a staid like static like concert show which 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 has its place. But to me it's like the difference between like stand up comedy and vaudeville. Like they're in it. You know, like the audience is, is like viscerally participating in it. Like, and it's, I think that's only possible against the backdrop of these types of songs with these, with like this, this overgrown number of musicians and this like loose ramshackle, like narratives that he's, that he's, that he's, that he's selling us on. Yeah, there's a there's a great anecdote from around this time where there's a recording of him talking to one of his friends, this guy Larry, quote unquote, Ratso Sloman, who is thanked on the the credits for Desire. He was sort of uh, I don't want to say he was a hangers on. That's a little more uh, negative than I mean it to be. But he wasn't a musician. He was a friend of Bob's, and he sort of helped out of different things. And apparently, during in the middle of the Rolling Thunder review. Ratso Sloman sort of bemoaned the fact that the Desire songs on the record, in his mind, were not as good as the live versions. And he said they felt that the live versions had become so much more intense, and he felt that the record was kind of a poor representation of these songs. And apparently Dylan says, said something to the effect of, come on, Larry, it's just another album. And that was really where his mindset was, is that and, and, you know, to a lot of musicians, the album, and to a lot of people that listen, the album is the artifact. You know, the album is the thing, the yardstick by which all future work will be compared against. But in Dylan, it was never like that. He kind of looked at it as, look, i got to put these songs on a record just so people know them, but where they're really going to come alive is is live. And that was he clearly his intention. As pri You're right. He thinks of himself as primarily like a live musician, you know, like, like he, and I don't know. I, there, to me, and I'd be curious about your read on this, there's a very select group of, like, you know how when you're comparing like books and like the film version of those books, there's like a very limited universe of 
of instances where like the movie outdoes the book. Like yes. so it is with great songs versus their live versions. I think like I don't I don't have scientific data to back this up, but I think the proportion of great songs where the live version is even better is roughly the same as like instances where like the movie is better than the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I and I think Desire and I love Desire. I've come to like fall in love with it. But but for me, Isis is a perfect example of that. That song needs like I'm listening to the studio version and I'm loving it. But I'm like this. Oh, this song needs to breathe. This song needs to get out there. Right. And maybe it's just because I've been conditioned to like the Rolling Thunder review, like uh, versions of it. But like it, it makes perfect sense to me that Dylan thought of himself that way. But I would argue that that's no more better typified than like in this album, in this era and like what he did with like the band and the bass and tapes and everything. Then like, like, like the I think 1960s albums, which were phenomenal. But I don't think of them primarily as like songs best heard lot even like even like in the royal albert hall days like you know what i mean Mm -hmm. this is different there's like a a, there's a very vibrant kinetic energy that like and and the alchemy just works they just pop live um and 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 the fact that he can be so versatile enough to be you know so towering in the studio and take these types of songs and bring them alive on stage is why he's like sort of singular and apart but it doesn't it, it does not surprise me that he thinks of himself as primarily a live musician, I will meet him halfway. To me, that's like when Eric Clapton is like, I am primarily a blues guitarist. Okay, fella, I, I buy it, I guess, to an extent. But, I mean, we, we know. We, we know the truth. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a shame that this uh, song didn't outlast uh, the Rolling Thunder review. It was only It's only been performed live 46 times from uh, October 1975 through May of 1976, and that was it. It has never been done ever since. And maybe part of it could be that Dylan himself lost the thread of the song. I mean, if he says that this is a song about marriage, and as, as you mentioned, Omar, you know, Dylan's marriage uh, faded uh, into history just a year later and maybe felt like, okay, there was nothing left to sort of say about this. But it's a shame because it said it's an amazing song. And its shadow is very long. I mean, the, the long-running Dylan fan magazine, which is still going to this day, uh, is called ISIS. I mean, they could yeah. have, they could have named that magazine after ten thousand different my back pages. And frankly, for they, eggs. they might have been better served renaming it about three or four years ago. But okay. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, no, it's no, it's still called ISIS. So, uh, you know, this is a song that uh, that people really, really like, even though it is an artifact of a specific time. It would be really interesting to hear him sing it today, but I guess that's really never going to happen because... Well, my theory, you know, real quickly, my theory on that, and it's not based on anything factual, but, like, I think I've just attached such a romanticism to, like, what is required to to play ISIS. ISIS, to me, requires, like... When I think of ISIS, I think of that crazy-ass guy, like, like in the, in the, the white paint, uh, like, just strutting around, just being, like, a crazy man. And I think... In my idealized world, the, the way I think Bob Dylan thinks, like I think he's just like, oh, it's a young man's game. That song, that song <laughs> requires a certain energy and a certain like vibrancy that I'm just not gonna do. Like, so you you can you can scale down like a hard rain's gonna fall. You can you can make it weird and and part of his like like weirdly muffled and like and and disjointed um, modern versions. But like it would break my heart to see like the ISIS version from the 1970s transformed into you know sometimes the mute kind of downscale way he he performs some of his numbers now i see what you're saying although he is you know in the last couple of years he's been doing a lot of songs sans guitar where he's just singing 
Yeah, which is recalling back of the, the the face paint days. But yeah, you're right. That 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 Rolling Thunder review, Bob Dylan had a lot more to prove uh, than this Bob Dylan. The the current iteration is much more sort of comfortable in who he is, and he doesn't feel that need to sort of be out there and be. I mean, the, the just the idea of hearing uh, the Bob Dylan of today even prefacing a song with "This is a song about marriage." I can't imagine that that Dylan. That Dylan's gone. Uh, that would say yeah. things like that. And the, this current version doesn't say things like he just starts playing, and it's up to you to sort of catch up. He doesn't give yeah. you any of those clues or. Anything. And it's fine. And for what it is now, and especially like the the musicianship that he's able to display now, like it, it fits and it's totally fine. We don't need. I don't need it. Like I like thinking of ISIS as a product of its era. That's how it makes me happy. Um, I'm sure you're right. I'm sure, you know, like given how inventive he is, like I'm sure they could, they could have found a way to make it work. But I kind of like it existing in my memory this way. Yeah, I can agree with that. I agree with that. It's, it's it. It's, it's of a very specific time. I would love to know, you know, like if you're in the band, you know, do you get to ever like pick a song? Like does Bob ever say to like Tony Garnier or one of the guys – yeah, anything from the catalog you go want to hear? You know, like one of the guys like, how about ISIS? No, we're not going to do that. All right, okay. I would kill to be a fly on that wall. Can you imagine? Uh, I somehow think it doesn't happen. Not because he's a jerk, but just because, like, I don't think it would occur to him to ask. Yeah, I think I think the band is just like, hey, Bob, whatever you want to play. You know, that's yeah. cool, man. Whatever you want to do, that's uh, that's great. But, yeah, this is an, an amazing song. And it coming as it does after Hurricane, you're hit with two really long complicated yep. story songs it really no is chorus, right? very no ambitious here. right right and no chorus it's just yep. boom here's your story catch up and you're 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 like whoa okay i'm trying to catch up with all this imagery and then before you know it he's back home and having accomplished not much of anything it's really it's really quite remarkable well i mean and i think again maybe this is just me re-engineering the narrative but like to me the the sort of like whiplash feeling I get from like the, the narrative of these songs, it fits kind of where he is in his career. Like he's just in a weird transition phase where he like comes out of this, you know, monumental period of like, of, of making world-class records to this like several years long period of like obscurity, ambiguity. He's like become this, this like strange recluse putting out like crappy records. Um, and he's clearly in a transition phase. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think it kind of fits. There's again, I always come back to loose, ramshackle, atmospheric. Those are the three words to me that typify the desire record. Those are the three words that typify his approach to songwriting. Those are the, the words that um, that occur to me in terms of how he frames his live performances. And those occur to me to describe where he is in his career now, where he's like in this weird transition phase, about to like barrel headfirst into like born again Christianity. You know, loose, ramshackle, atmospheric. I kept trying to figure out a way to describe why I like ISIS so much, and I just kept coming back to the word atmospheric. It's like his most, one of his most atmospheric songs. I don't even know if I know what that means, but <laughs> I think you do. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, he said if, if you look ahead and you know what's coming. I mean, that that Dylan's records and his life would get even more kind of spirally and really kind of crazy, and then that let you know, as you can see, would naturally led to. Uh, you know, kind of a bringing it all back home kind of thing where he did to become this devout Christian, which is like one of the most amazing right turns in all of, uh, you know, music. Oh, man, and I'm so, I, I'm glad we talked about this, but if we had talked about Save, oh, I would have had some things to say. 
Well, we will have to get to that. Um, yep. We will have to get to that, Omar. I mean, uh, unless you have anything else you want to say about ISIS, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here. But I'm gonna promise you're gonna come back because, as as uh, as you said, we'll pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, pull back the cover, as I'll say. Uh, you suggested two songs, either ISIS or Saved, and I said let's do ISIS. But uh, we absolutely should get to Saved because there's some amazing stuff on that record too. Yeah, I, I, I'd absolutely love to. And you know, I'm so glad that you uh, you like this song too. Um, I, I really hope that. People go back and, you know, discover this song again, rediscover it, rediscover the live versions on the Rolling Thunder Review. And, you know, don't sleep on Desire. Don't sleep Don't sleep on Desire, the record, I mean. I mean, don't sleep on Desire generally in your life, but don't sleep <laughs> on Desire, the record. Like, it's very tempting to be like, oh, you know, he had the 60s stuff, and then he went to Blood on the Tracks and maybe some stuff with the band, and then, like, shoot on down to, like, oh, mercy. And it's like, no, no, no. Desire to me, the more I think about it, is like an essential part of his catalog. And we're really doing ourselves a disservice by not putting it up there with like the great all-time records it is. Yeah. Oh, there are some other amazing songs on uh, on this record. I mean, Sarah in particular is, oh, yeah. is one I would love to discuss. There's some other stuff. A little tough to get through, Joey. But uh, sure. but overall, <laughs> overall, there's some amazing stuff. And except we, we accidentally, uh, I've now covered the first two songs of Desire in a row. So I guess uh, next up is uh, Mozambique. Somebody's going to have to uh, uh, pony up to do that one. And we'll, we'll see what happens. But well, anyway, if anyone has a lick of sense, they will. It's a great song. Right. It is a great, it's a great song. So anyway, Omar, well, thank you so much man this is fantastic again you were on uh film and water and we had a great time talking about the nixon there it is once again uh, richard nixon and uh and this this was just terrific so thank you for coming on pod dylan rob i always have so much fun talking to you about this stuff so thanks so much for the invitation i'm looking forward to doing it again all right uh, absolutely well everybody of course you want to listen to back episodes of the show Go to the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, or on Twitter, where we're always talking about Bob Dylan, which is at pod underscore Dylan. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Until the next episode, uh, we will see you later. Bye. I married ISIS on the 5th day of May, but I could not hold on to her. I cut off my hair and I rode straight away Oh, the wild unknown country where I could not go wrong I came to a high place of darkness and light The biting line ran through the center of town I hitched up my pony to a post on the right I knew right away he was not ordinary. He said, Are you looking for something easy to catch? Said, I got no money. He said, That ain't necessary.